0: Welcome to the Cutting the Gwinnian Podual cast. This is part two of the Church and State series, where we are looking at Church and State with a variety of different lenses. Today we're going to be using the gender lens, man and woman. That's right. No theybes, not in this episode. Man and woman. And we're going to be comparing the state to the masculine and the church to the feminine, and hopefully giving you a few insights along the way. Now. Fair warning, dear listener. This is one of those terrible episodes where I wrote up a bunch of notes a while ago, and now I'm going to try to record today. So I hope it makes some semblance of sense. Well, without any further ado, let's jump into a bit of a gender. Recap: We did an entire episode called Non-Cringy Theology of the Body many moons back, but I assume that's not uh, in the forefront of your consciousness. So let me just give you a brief recap. I described male as being directed towards intermediary goods, so goods that bring about a further good, whereas female seems to be directed at goods that terminate in themselves. So men are, to a great extent, instances of intermediate goods, and women are, to a great extent, instances of goods in and of themselves. So let me give you a few rubber meets the road kind of examples. Men love goods of protection, because that brings about security. Production, because this brings about goods and services. And propulsion, because this would bring one place to place. Whereas women they might love those things, but they particularly seem to love goods of community, goods of beauty, and goods of pleasure and just joy. Each one of those things don't terminate in something outside of itself, but actually terminate in itself. You don't say, I'm going to have a vibrant, wonderful, loving community so that. No, no, no. That's actually kind of an end. It's just a good thing. Same with beauty, of course. You don't have something become beautiful be it a house or you don't go to a beautiful place in order so that well it's just beautiful that's good that's the end and same with pleasure going out for the proverbial manicure or pedicure or anything else like that it's it's just good in and of itself like that terminates there so yes, men love those other things and women love the others. And all of that is expected. We should expect a crossover because the first man, Adam, when he saw the first woman, Eve, said, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. So we are made of the same stuff. So we should have a lot of crossover. But I like to make that distinction based on the ends that we are um, are pointed towards and instances of, either ends in and of themselves or things which are intermediate goods that terminate in something latter. All right, so now that we got that recap here, I want to throw something into the mix. Thomas Aquinas lays out four motivations that people have. Wealth, power, pleasure, honor. And I think that these categories are very uh, inclusive. I think that they pretty much sum up all possible motivations with the only exception of the one that he lists after that, which is beatitudo, meaning we just know God as God. We know the ultimate good himself, and that brings about a type of supernatural happiness. So Aquinas argues that we should be ultimately motivated by beatitudo, that we should be seeking happiness, but seeking it in following God, not following just wealth, power, pleasure, honor. Instead, these need to be just subservient to God and in our pursuit of Beatitudo, not ends in and of themselves. Now, what I like about this list is that two of them fit with my definition of maleness or masculinity and two female. So these temptations to have something other than Beatitudo be our our driving force, um, yeah, two of them seem to relate to male. And I would say those two would be wealth and power. I think that's what guys gravitate to. If they're going to be not seeking God, they're probably going to be trying to get rich or get powerful. That's, odds are, that's what they're up to. In women, on the other hand, it seems that when they're not following God, they go to pleasure and honor. Now maybe they want to be honored as the most beautiful, or the most desirable, or the most whateverable. <laughs> maybe the the smartest. Maybe the this or that. Um, pleasure can be the uh, the phrase "treat yourself" that you may have heard on all corners of the internet at this point. So pleasure and honor seem to be what women would default to if they're not following God. Wealth and power, the male temptations. Now, is there crossover? Yes, obviously. But I'd say those pretty well hold. And if you think through friends and family you have, um, that's probably going to fit reasonably well. So what does all this have to do with church and state? Well, as I said from the top of the episode, I think that there's a male character to state and there's a female character to the church. So let's go back through those goods which I related to maleness, goods of protection, production, and propulsion. Yes, I know, I could have said transportation, but a man's got to alliterate. So let's start with goods of protection. Here's what we expect out of the state. And again, we're using state, yes, meaning government, but in a little bit more of a, a large way. It includes economic institutions and a variety of institutions in life. It's our life together in the polis, if you will. But we expect here in the polis that we'll have a military to protect us from invasion police to protect us from crime, and courts to protect us from injustice. These are all goods of protection, and therefore they seem to relate to the male mode. The male mode being, again, that it's oriented towards, and to an extent, an instance of, a intermediate good. Goods of production. A nation ought to have a powerful economic engine, and the government ought to set the stage and allow the freedom for the market to produce many goods and services. So that's another thing we need internal to the state, the goods of production. And finally, the goods of propulsion. We should expect that there should be provision somehow, maybe private, maybe public, of roads and canals and bridges Uh, maybe train networks, whatever we need in order to move around the polis. Uh, Move goods and services, move ourselves, um, move military equipment. Whatever we need, we should expect this out of the state. So, protection, production, propulsion. So, what about the church? Can we map on those feminine goods? Well, let's look at the three that I listed. The goods of communion. Well, yes, the the church is meant to be a new Eden, right? It, it's meant to be, an Eden, of course, was a place of communion with God and neighbor, eating freely of the tree of life. We had the tabernacle and then the temple with lots of Eden imagery. We have the church, which is a new Eden of types. I mean, we have Christ resurrected in a garden, for heaven's sake. So, We have this place of community is the church. Community not just with people, but also community with God. That's why we have the Eucharist as our communion meal. This common union with all. Not just the people there, but the people around the world. And not just the people around the world, but even the church which has passed on into heaven we are in communion with. So the church is a deeply communal place. What about goods of beauty? Well, the church itself ought to be beautiful. The building itself ought to be beautiful. And I think that the church ought to infect the entirety of society with beauty in the form of art, music, festivals, celebrations, holidays, beautiful acts of mercy, of generosity, of magnanimity. All of those things relate to beauty. And I think those things pour out of the church. And finally, the goods of pleasure and play, eudaimonia, to use the fancy word, meaning right leisure. So play, fun, these things are done for their own sake, yet they're also a supercharged means of learning. So in a former episode, uh, talking to um, brother, oh goodness, don't forget his name in the podcast. Anyways, a fantastic Dominican brother. Um... I mentioned how kittens play like they're hunting, and other little animals play like they're going to be working as adults. And when we come to worship, the Mass has been called a type of play, we are playing in a way that will relate to our final form of action, and that is in heaven. So, worship, the Mass, uh, this communal play that we do internal to the church, this eudaimonia, the right leisure. Yes, that's good in and of itself, but it's also this supercharged means of learning by which we are prepared for a stage in life that has not yet come, and that stage is heaven. So extraordinarily important, eudaimonia, this right leisure, the play, the pleasure that we get in, um, in uh, these types of activities. So I'm sure I could have named, this is not a, a, uh, a list which includes everything. There are many more. But I did think I would name three. And I named three because, well, of course, I can gerrymander them into Trinitarian categories. How would I do such a thing? Well, something like this. Production. That seems to relate to Jesus. We're told in Scripture that all things were made through him. Protection. That seems to connect us into the Father, right? and his mode of uh, universal providence. the Old Testament, we always see the Father fighting the enemies. The Exodus, right? This core salvation story, it's the Father who fights against Pharaoh and saves his people. What about propulsion? I'm going to chalk that one up to the Holy Spirit, the divine wind. The Holy Spirit prompts the movement of the prophets, the expansion of the church. We see it in the New Testament, driving Paul out to preach to the Macedonians, is pulled by the Spirit. We see um, Jesus is drawn to the desert by the Spirit. So it's a good of propulsion, if you will. So there's that, the male mode goods, because all goods come from God. These we can map onto the persons of the Trinity. And of course, all the feminine goods, because they are good, come from the maximum of goodness God himself. I would say the good of communion relates to the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he's the cause and the principle of unity in Christ's church. We're told that the soul of the church is the Holy Spirit. What about beauty? This is a tough one. I think I'm going to say this one relates to the Father because the beauty of uh, of God and his goodness is on display in the creation. And we're told that his beauty is so great that Moses could not even look upon his face. So we're going to say beauty relates to the Father. And finally, eudaimonia, right? Pleasure and right play, right? I'm going to say that relates to Jesus Christ because he's the one who came down to us like a father stoops down to his children. He came from heaven to, well, teach us to. Worship, to teach us to play, to teach us how to be prepared for eternal life, to show us what the spiritual game is. All right, so that's how I would map those on. So, with all that said, it ought to come as no surprise that in Scripture, the church is referred to as a her, as a bride. And the state, on the other hand, is at least to my knowledge always referred to in masculine terms though if we are speaking of the state of Israel there are times where this distinction is blurred as we discussed more in depth in the first episode so let's see if we can uh, pull out a few verses here we have in Romans or he is god's ser- for he is god's servant for your good but if you do wrong be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So we certainly see a lot of male pronouns here for the state. And and maybe my listeners can correct me, but I'm pretty sure that there is no place in scripture that's at least not referring to the nation of Israel, which does indeed blur these categories of church and state for the reasons which we dealt with, I'm pretty sure there is no other time that state or government is ever referred to in any other than male terms. Okay. So um, before we do a little bit of uh, pivoting into um, uh, how everything goes wrong uh, with church and state using our male and female analogies, I want to get another piece on the table. I think you're going to like this one because it's from good old G.K. Chesterton. A man about whom all good things that are said about them are true, and all bad things that have ever been said about him are also true. All righty. I may slip into my Jeremy Clarkson voice because the first time I read Chef- Chesterton, I realized that if he ever is going to have a really excellent audiobook, it must be read by Jeremy Clarkson. That mix of unbridled sheer ridiculousness and feigned British seriousness is exactly what this man typifies, both of them. All right. From, ooh goodness, where is this from? I'm going to say it's from Orthodoxy. That sounds right. The woman's wisdom stands partly, not only, for a wholesome hesitation about punishment, but even for a wholesome hesitation about absolute rules. There was something feminine and perversely true in that phrase of Wilde's that people should not be treated as the rule, but all of them as exceptions. Made by a man, the remark was a little effeminate for Wilde did lack the masculine power of dogma and of democratic cooperation. But if a woman had said it, it would have been simply true. A woman does treat each person as a particular person. In other words, she stands for anarchy, a very ancient and arguable philosophy. Not anarchy in the sense of having no customs in one's life, Which is of course inconceivable, but anarchy in the sense of having no rules for one's mind. To her, almost certainly are due all those working traditions that cannot be found in books, especially those of education. It was she who first gave a child a stuffed stocking for being good, or stood him in the corner for being naughty. This unclassified knowledge is sometimes called rule of thumb and sometimes mother wit. The last phrase suggests the whole truth. For none ever called it father wit. Now, anarchy is only tact when it works badly. Tact is only anarchy when it works well. And we ought to realize that in one half of the world, the private house, it does work well. We modern men are perpetually forgetting that that the case for the clear rules and crude penalties is not self-evident, that there is a great deal to be said for the benevolent lawlessness of the autocrat, especially on a small scale. In short, that government is only one side of life, the other half is called society, in which women are admittedly dominant, and they have always been ready to maintain that their kingdom is better governed than ours, because, in the logical and legal sense, it is not governed at all. Whether you have a real difficulty, they say, well, a boy is bumptious or an aunt is stingy, when a silly girl will marry someone or a wicked man won't marry someone, all you slumbering Roman law and British constitutions comes to a standstill a snub from a duchess, or a slang from a fishwife, are much more likely to put things straight. In his roundabout, and often hyperbolic way, I think the man's making a few good points, and here it is in more plain English. Men make rules, and women use discretion. The manly world, at least as Chesterton describes it, is a world of law, and courts, and reward, and punishment. And the feminine world is one that uses soft power, dense social connections, discretion and nuance. He makes the point that the female mode works on the small scale. And later he speaks of the female mode of discretion and anarchy um, as being a type of tyranny. And that's certainly true if it's at the large scale. And likewise, if we use the male mode as he's describing it, as law, as justice, this Ward and punishment. If we used it as a small family scale, it just, we lose the individuality. It becomes whole, hard, and cold, and harsh, and inhuman if it's at a small scale. So, in the family, or small scale community, there is, in a sense, a law, and there's also, in a sense, anarchy. So, that's why we have male and women here. But we can we can certainly have a lot more of what he would call anarchy because there are no evil people in the family, or at least there shouldn't be, where in a family nobody's supposed to be an enemy. So there's no need to protect against somebody. And laws and punishments, these things are meant to protect against others. So the goods of uh, protection are not as needed inside of this small-scale community. So that masculine mode, that use of law, is not as much needed and we can also look at the goods of production so as applied through the law it doesn't it doesn't quite fit because in the small scale discretion will bring to each what they truly need and uh, at the large scale there's just not the information to do such a thing in a family what's produced is then distributed according to somebody who does know better right the the mother and father in a state, of course, there is nobody who knows better than the mothers and fathers of the families which make up the state. All right, I do want to make a few quick side notes here because, as always, we have our feminist friends who, um, like to make objections, which might go something like this to what I've been talking about so far. I've listed out some things which are common to men, common to women. I listed out some things from Chesterton talking about the rules versus discretion, the laws versus this nuance, the the uh, the rule relating to the, the whole and the general versus the insistence that people are truly individual and should be treated as exceptions. I lay these things out and I can already hear the response my friend Stacy likes goods of production, and I love goods of propulsion, and why can't men also love community, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. As soon as we begin to use rules to classify men and women into these different categories, many women just reflexively start racking their brains for exceptions. And to an extent, I'm gonna say that's good, and that they should do that. And here's another point. You're making Chesterton's point precisely by insisting that there are so many exceptions to Chesterton's point. This is a very Chestertonian situation indeed. Um, they're saying that uh, Chesterton's saying women are the ones who always insist on the ins- the exception, that everybody should be viewed as an individual. They say, really? Really? Well, what's the exception to that? So we're in quite the little circle. So if you want more information on this, go back to that Theology of the Body episode that I discussed earlier, and I'll point out once more, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, means that men and women are made of the same stuff. We have a common human nature. Um, So if what I've been saying so far makes it sound like we are entirely different species, well, that would be entirely wrong. Um... So, yes, we will find men in the, uh, the acquisition of many of the goods which are described as feminine and vice versa. That's um, not surprising at all. So, let me illuminate this with an analogy. Let's take the following statement. Trucks are for moving cargo and cars are for moving people. Now, that is true. And it would simply be being argumentative and bullheaded to counter. But but, but 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 I know cars and I know trucks that da da da. Yes, I know that's true, but that doesn't take away from the truth of the statement. Trucks are for moving cargo, and cars are for moving people. So yes, cars can have trunks, and trucks can have crew cabs, and whatever. But um, I'm not denying any of that. I would say, in response to that, that, uh, that cars and trucks are made of the same stuff. So we shouldn't expect that they would be entirely different. We could say, bolt of my bolt. Body panel of my body panel. Positive crankcase ventilation valve diaphragm of my, well, you get the point. There is crossover, of course. So cars and trucks exist, and so do men and women. But note how I differentiate both, and I explain the difference of both. I do it based on their ends, and this actually clarifies issues of crossover. It would be silly to say that cars are anything that can carry more than so many square feet of cargo. Kind of like it's silly to say that men are people with so much testosterone, or people who could produce so much, protect so much, propel so much, etc. We're not looking at that as our criteria. So my very old, high-mileage Mercedes diesel sedan is rated to tow twice as much as the new Ford Maverick pickup truck. But does that mean that my car is a truck, or that that truck is actually a car, or that there are no cars or trucks, and that the distinction is useless, or that people who want a truck should actually buy an old diesel Mercedes sedan and not a small truck? No, 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 no feel like we're wandering into a transgender episode now, but that's how this movement started. Feminism wished to use the feminine impulse for exception to do two main things. One, to force open a space in society at large for sexually divergent people, and then two, to blur the line between male and female by focusing on the exception and not the rule. All right, so I've made a Distinction, not based on arbitrary stereotypes, not even based on the way that people act in the world, but instead based on these ends. It is not prescriptive or directive, but descriptive. It doesn't curtain off the pursuit of any goods, but it does illuminate in which mode we pursue and enjoy these goods. All righty, well, let's move on to some errors. Here's my overall thesis that when we get male and female wrong, we consequently get church and state wrong. So it's just a grand scale of our gender confusion. The first one, the first type of confusion I wanna talk about is the feminist church. So in a strange twist of fate, it seems to be that the far right Catholics are proposing a feminist church because they're confusing the masculine modes in the role of the church and the state. And our favorite whipping boy, the distributist, often argue that we should center our economic life in the family, that we ought to oppose big international companies, and we should distribute, right, distributists, distribute the means of production to a small, more family scale, that our Catholic faith must infect our work so that work becomes worship. Now, listen... That last part can be kind of true if read in a certain way, but the devil's in the details, or at least in their details. Um, the church um, is uh, quite similar to the, uh, well, hmm, let me back it up. The family is called the domestic church. So their insistence of moving the goods of production from the state, where it belongs, to the family is drawing it into the domestic church but the church has that feminine mode and that feminine mode is not centered around production it's centered around things like goods of beauty and community and and eudaimonia so no you don't ha- eudaimonia means right leisure not Productive work. That's not what we do in a family. We can rest in a family. We can have right leisure in a family. Yes, family businesses are fine, whatever, but no, work belongs to the state side of the equation. All right, um... Of course, the the uh, insistence on nepotism, as uh, it just absolutely galled me amongst some distributists, that you should prefer people in your family for these businesses, I think is um, entirely ill-conceived. What you're doing is saying that you want the good of community in your good of production. But these are two different modes of pursuing the good. And as we explained earlier, both the masculine and feminine modes of, preferring the, of pursuing the good relate to God as trinity. So we have these different modes and we ought to use them, not confuse them. So the goods of community are not the same as the goods of production. So preferring nepotism over justice is not just wrong and injustice. It's also confusing male and female. It's wanting a feminist church, one that's a church but acts masculine, pursuing the masculine goods. Now, it's not just economic life that is taken from its proper place in the state and instead burdens the church, but there's also some of the right wing, and I consider myself right of center um, in most things, but there's people on the very much right wing who even are suggesting violence to solve social problems, things like abortion. And listen. I get the rationale. I understand it. Sure. We should be able to use violence to protect others. Absolutely. But the question is, who does this? And here's my claim. The goods of protection relate to the state. They do not relate to the church. So, the masculine character of the state, that, um, that relates to its masculine character of protector. We are told in Scripture that the government holds the sword as given by God, and that when Peter, the head of the church, pulled out his sword when Jesus was being arrested, the greatest injustice of all, the betrayal of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus tells him, Peter, put away your sword. Peter holds the keys, not the sword. So the government is the institution that may wield the sword. The government, the state as a whole, can use violence. That is not the church's role. To ask the church to take on the role of protector and provider is to wish for a blue-haired feminist church, not the spotless, beautiful bride that is destined for the marriage of the Lamb at the end of time. All right, so... um. We have the feminist church. I guess we could probably fill in some additional things here. But you you kind of get the picture. We're trying to have the church fulfill the masculine ways of pursuing God's goodness. We also have, and this one, if anything, is more illustrative of our day today, <coughs> excuse me, the transgender state. So in the, the first case, we had the church acting masculine, well, now we have the state thinking it's a church. No, no. I think it really does. Our state today, our government, i am particularly speaking of, but hey, the corporations are in the mix too, are clothing themselves as a church. They are dressing in the feminine clothing of religion. They have a creed. There's people who put those signs in front of their house that I believe in science, quote unquote. Um, I believe in, you know, women's rights and they have their whole creed. Uh, they have sinners and saints, right? I think they're very clear about who's who. They have rites of penance where you denounce your, say, white privilege. They have an apocalypse, right? The, the uh, climate is going to kill us all, we're, we're told. They have a liturgical calendar, which is being enforced not just by government, but by corporations it's done by the state as a whole is enforcing a liturgical calendar on us they're pretending they're dressing up in drag <laughs> um they're dressing up as the feminine character as the church um they tell us uh, how we're we're meant to worship worship being the assigning of the highest things in the highest place they tell us what is essential and not essential we all remember that and i'm sure i I could go on. Um, the church is trying, v- or the state, is trying very hard to be the church. But it can't. And as a result, it's only a parody of it. Um, it's only, in a sense, a mockery of it. Um, now, some people want us to react by um, bouncing back to the first era we talked about, having the church rise up and dictate law, fight evil people, um, to, to stop the powers of the state, to do all those things. And listen, I get the impulse. But here's what we should be doing instead. We need to be telling our state who he really is. We need to be illuminating for those involved in business, involved in governance, involved in all stages of society, how they can pursue God in these masculine modes. We need to remind them that there is a real church and they are not it. They are the state and that is good and they can pursue the goods of protection, the goods of propulsion and the goods of whatever other thing I said with a P. (laughs) All right, next one the absentee father. So what happens when the state leaves its post? Well, the church kind of has to step up. So if stupid economic policy leaves people destitute, then the church has to provide for them instead. But the church is not the provider. It will, and it should, but only if the state has failed. But in this position, it's acting like a single mom. We could call this the single mom church. Not that the church and state are married, but I think you get the masculine-feminine analogy. So especially in our society, there ought to be plenty of profitable work for everybody to engage in and a massive amount of inexpensive goods and services for them to purchase. The rule ought to be that he who shall not work shall not eat. And the inverse in a good state is that he who does work should be able to eat. Now, the exception, the marginal case, that's the place where the bride of Christ ought to be at work, in those situations where the normal system missed the individual, even though it's supporting the rule. So for someone who's disabled, for someone who can't work, for someone who's an exception, this is where the church needs to be providing. But for people in general, their needs need to be met in this state. So in this respect, we don't have an absentee father government. In this respect, the the latter one relating to those in need, it is quite trans. It's seeking to treat all as the exception. It's lavishly spending on the poor and driving out private charity in the process. It's taking over the role of the church. So the absentee father state fails to protect and we have that too. There's a failure of our state to protect the unborn, and that's a disgrace, something that God's going to judge us for. Um, I mean in the past, God's brought down some pretty egregious punishments for people who sacrifice their children. See, well, pretty much wherever in the Old Testament. Um, we also see a lack of of uh, of protection for uh, legal rights. We, we we see lack of um, protection against against injustice, people being prosecuted who barely broke the law, people who broke the law not being prosecuted at all. This type of selective justice is the absentee father state falling down in his post. It's meant to protect from injustice, protect from evil, reward the good, and it's failed. You could also say um, that an absentee father's state would uh, fail to uh, protect from um, uh, from encroachment from people on the border, right? Now listen, I'm very pro-immigration in general, probably more than, than most people are, and you can go back and listen to my immigration episode. But at very least, it's failing to protect towns from being overrun at the border and failing to use judgment in bringing those same people into areas where they could be incorporated. And it's pretty embarrassing that obvious solutions haven't been made. I mean, like a sponsorship program for individual states. So state by state, they can choose how many people come in instead of just mobbing the border towns, which are entirely incapable of taking these people in, at the behest of New England states, which vote more and more. We have the largest human migration in the history of the world right now. So we ought to have protection, not just of those towns, but also of those people who are being lured in in incredibly dangerous situations. It's falling down to the post to protect people on all sides of this. All right, so that's certainly one we have, the absentee father state. We have people advocating on the right for the feminist church, and we also have a transgender state in operation. Now on the other side, we Have the nagging or ungrateful wife. Um, How many marriages do you know where the wife just picks at the man? Thankfully, not all marriages are like this, but I mean, it's fairly common. So do we ever have this in a church and state relationship? Hmm? Hmm? Yeah, I think we do. I think that at least if you're in the U.S., we have a culture whereby um, we criticize our government constantly. And yes, as the church, sure, we have the moral high ground, but we need to recognize that um, we need to be building up the state, not just criticizing it. How on earth can we exist together, church and state, if the church just stands in society for a force of criticism and derision? If you're listening in the U.S., you live in a level of safety and security, which is so historically... um, unbelievable. that Your only response should be gratitude. You are present in a roaring economy that presses our standard of living to the highest levels the world has ever seen or imagined. The ease with which you travel, the freedom with which you speak, and the rights that you have to liberty are unprecedented on the historical stage. So we as a church should not be a whiny, nagging, or ungrateful wife. We ought to look at the state, inclusive of more than the government, of course, and recognize the incredible provision that we've had, protection we enjoy, and uh, and build up the state, not just tear it down. Otherwise, we're not going to get along. All right. Um, the cheating husband. Let's deal with that one. The uh, the uh, the cheating husband. I would say would be a state which sees um, which sees rivals to the true church as the one that it ought to um, exist with. I think that's what's going on right now. I think our state is is committing adultery with the woke leftist church of hedonism, pride, selfishness, and debauchery. I think it's wed itself to her and forsaken the church. So yeah, we're in a cheating husband state. There's also the, um, here's another uh, failure mode, is the controlling husband. We've we've seen those terrible marriages where it's a, a domineering, controlling husband. And I'd say this represents, and this has been many times in history, whereby the state runs the church. So yeah, they're technically autonomous here, but the church just has to do what the state says. It's kind of like the Anglican church for many years and kind of to an extent now, depending on what splinter of Anglicanism you are looking at. So all of those, I would say, are obviously failures. And we could certainly add plenty more. But um, when we're seeking to figure out how our church and state should relate together, I suggest that we should we should use a good marriage as the model. So before we hit a few more thoughts, I want to uh, talk about the failure modes, not just vis-a-vis one another, but individually, and circle it back to what we talked about with St. Thomas Aquinas, those rival temptations, temptations that we pursue certain goods instead of God himself, Beatitudo, and these other goods just fall in line in our pursuit of God, the highest good. So we have wealth, power, pleasure, honor. I think the feminine character is drawn to honor and pleasure. And I think since the church is a she, it is the spotless bride of Christ, I think the church is particularly susceptible to temptations to honor and pleasure. I think that the Protestant critique of the Catholic Church at many times in history, though not all, that it demands that people kiss the ring, that we have clericalism, which even inside of the church we decry, um, the idea that priests are put in this high sense of honor that people should you know be so you know honoring of, of such people, I think that that can be wrong, right? Thomas Aquinas says that we should honor the positions in the church, but that the people in the church are... Sometimes just little useless pebbles, as he puts it. Well, he didn't say useless because he's nicer than me. Um, But pebbles, nonetheless. So sometimes we have a priest or a bishop or even a pope who's just a little pebble. God just chose a little rock from the ground and he put him in the place there. Yeah, you're a placeholder. We have placeholders, right? And they're not actually deserving of any honor and we shouldn't give them any. But the office deserves honor. But inside of the church... We have this confusion that, hey, we, we, me, you, we deserve great honor. Um, When that's not the case, we need to be honoring God and allowing him to honor us. Because if we honor ourselves, it's not honor. And if we demand honor from others, then what we receive is not honor. The other thing is pleasure. Um, If we're seeking pleasure for its own sake, absent of God, not right leisure, but just hedonistic pleasure that's not okay often in churches we see the priests deacons etc being lazy not doing much uh maybe they fulfill a few tasks but they're just kind of asleep at the post how many priests do you know who are just kind of fat and unhealthy Who are prone to gluttony and laziness and sloth who would rather just i don't know sit home and watch netflix who aren't actually active who aren't being fathers in the church Thankfully, it's not all. And God bless you if you're not like that. Um, And let's put our prayers to work to help the priests who are falling to temptations of pleasure or honor. As we learned in the Leviticus series, on the Day of Atonement, when the priest goes to meet with, with God, all of the people are meant to be praying. Prayers partially of just protection for the priest so that he's not struck dead. Um, So it's a scary thing to be irreligious. They deserve our prayers to keep them from being struck dead, either physically or spiritually by God, because they have a very important post. But I digress. State. What do you think the primary temptations of the state are? I think it's certainly those masculine ones. Money and power money and power are those intermediary goods honor and pleasure are the goods which terminate in themselves so the state has this love of money just look at its incredible debt at the at the federal level at the not so much at the state level but um the right now it's all of all of the money spent in the u.s it's somewhere around 40 percent of it is spent by the government how ridiculous its love of money knows no bounds, and power constantly seeking to expand its power over the populace. This is a temptation which stands in opposition to a proper love of God and neighbor. All righty, um, the state ought to not love power and money not um, to love God, it ought to use power, and money to bring about good ends. We're reminded in scripture that in the end, the city of God has streets which are paved with gold, meaning that money is used in its proper place to become a means to an end, a way of getting somewhere. Hmm, It means a propulsion. The streets paved with gold represent a safe place to travel because that's at least especially in the ancient world, roads were viewed as the place of safety, protected from the wilderness. So it's a good of protection. And of course, roads at the time of the writing of Revelation were some of the most incredible works of production. Think the incredible Roman road network. So there you go. We have, um, we have In the City of God, everything put in its proper place and i really like that image of the streets paved with gold things used in order to bring about an end ends of of uh propulsion of protection of production okay a few let's uh wrap up with a with a few more thoughts here um yeah in summary uh We ought to expect that that the church gives us the goods of community with God and neighbor, of beauty and of eudaimonia. It ought not wield the sword that belongs to the state. The keys belong to the church. Jesus says to Peter, the leader of the church, put your sword away, Peter. We also should expect that the church provides for those who are exceptional cases whereas the state should lay it out such that those who work will be able to eat. We should um, be very on guard for the church to fall to honor and pleasure instead of love of God. And we ought to recognize that the state's laws, insofar as they reflect God's laws, mean that we must obey them. And scripture says as much. We do have to obey all governing authority because it is from God. And this fits with our analogy of man and woman, whereby a wife must obey her husband. And yet, if the state is no longer in obedience to God, no longer reflective of his laws, then the church does not have to obey the state any more than a wife would need to obey her husband. If her husband commands sin or makes some type of declaration that she ought to pursue anything other than God. So we have a similar relationship between the two. The church cannot set speed limits. Unfortunately, we must abide by them or at least approximate them. Um, The church must pay taxes, not because the, the state deserves them or even earned them, but because it was delegated by God an authority even to tax and even to tax Christ's church. As ridiculous as that is, we must abide by it. Jesus um, said that we are to um, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Um, the state ought to use wise laws to give us the goods of protection, propulsion and production and many more. And it ought not use discretion. It ought not treat people as individuals. It ought to treat them as equal under the law. Um, It ought not make itself its own end, right? That's the real failure mode of men is when they fail in the feminine character. And that's really probably the very worst where men view themselves at an end in of themselves, so they love themselves with a feminine mode love? Who? That's the conceited, selfish, arrogant man who just falls into all sorts of viciousness and vice. The state can do this, and it ought to be on guard against making itself an end. It also ought never act as if it's the cause of community and unity. This may be the first time I'm ever going to quote Barack Obama on this podcast, but Barack Obama famously said that government is the word for things we do together, and nothing could be more stupid than that statement. No, the cause of community and unity ought to be the church, because the cause of community in the polis actually comes from the vertical institution, which reaches out to God. Um, that's the model all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Um, yeah, I think you guys get the point there. I think this is a helpful lens to uh, to view the uh, the distinction between church and state. I did get into um, I did get to one section of the Summa, so we are switching gears a little bit. We've concluded this uh, part two, and uh, now I'm going to give you a little bit of bonus content. As I was looking into Aquinas' thoughts on men and women, I came across a fairly famous section that um, often gets criticized. And I just want to take a minute to uh, to stand up for my main man, Thomas Aquinas. Because famously, Aquinas says that men and women, about men and women, that women are misbegotten men. And of course, people who are not reflexively charitable (laughs) apparently whenever whenever these issues come up think that he must hate women and whatever else think that maybe he means misbegotten meaning there's sometimes somehow a mistake right that they're not intended that they're less than but that's just I don't know making things up that's not actually looking into Aquinas so we're going to look into Aquinas and figure out what he means by misbegotten what on earth does that mean Because misbegotten is the English. And the Latin is, oh, I say Latin so poorly. People who know Latin are probably going to make fun of me. But deficient et occasionatus. There you go. And this means um, that they are, uh, that being a female means that they are not completed and accidental. What does that mean? What does that mean? Does that mean an accident? No, no, no. If you have the uh, philosophical background, you'll know that an accidental quality is not a essential quality. So having brown hair, accidental, it could be blonde. Um, but uh, being a rational animal, a human being, well, that's something that's essential. Uh, you couldn't be you and have, I don't know, the nature of a mm, earthworm. No, you would no longer be you. That's not the type of change that would preserve the thing. So, why does he say that women are uncompleted men? Well, today's biology, I think, actually vindicates him here. Here's why. Because all, f- all people, every single person, whether you're a man or a woman or a whatever, well, there's just men and women, but anyways, um, if you're a man or a woman, you developed as an embryo as a female Originally. And it wasn't until, if you're a guy, your Y chromosome kicked in and then you went off the female trajectory and towards the male trajectory. In other words, women are those who did not have the additional type of chromosome that changed their developmental direction. That means they were lacking the Y chromosome. Everybody listening to this has an X at least one, everybody. But not everybody has a Y, which means some of us lack the different type of chromosome and some of us have both. So we can just simply say that women lack the other type of chromosome. To put that in philosophical language, women are deficient or lacking of, lacking of what? the differentiating material that forms them as male if they would have had it. So, is a woman a deficient male? Not that they are worse, not that they're morally worse. If that's how you read it, you just came to this whole question with an agenda or something. So, no. He's saying that women materially lack something that men have. Fact check, true. It's called a Y chromosome. Not that he knew that, but it turns out that, yes, he was right. There's a material differentiation that men have that women don't, such that women are deficient. Deficient? You mean are terrible? No, no, no. For the 100th time, this is not about hatred of women. This is simply the way that he describes it in his philosophical system. The next part, the occasionous uh, part, right, The and accidental, um, he thinks that the femaleness is an accident of a substance, so not part of an essence. So, he thinks that the reason for you being either male or female is not your human nature. Instead, it's your material. He thinks that men and women are male and female because of material. There's a material reason, not so much a uh, a uh, essential reason it doesn't we we if we had an essential difference, that means that we would be different philosophical species, but we're not different philosophical species. We are the same. we are rational animal as um as uh, good old uncle Aristotle calls it, so finally, in his philosophy, the active force brings about its like, so biologically. He thinks that the seed of a man is like the an actual seed. <laughs> so imagine for Aquinas that an oak tree drops an oak seed. And then um, let's pretend that half of the oak seeds grew up oaks which resembled the original oak. And the other half were smaller or physically weaker or in some way did not resemble the other oak. He would explain that as the oak aimed at recreating its like, and it did so more accurately or completely or perfectly in the first case, because it had everything of the original, meaning perfect. Perfect meaning better? No. (laughs) Perfect meaning complete. Complete relative to that which produced it. So that's what he's saying. When he thinks that men are more perfectly created, he thinks that the male seed represents the total active power of generating a human and that it completely generated that which began the generation when it generates a man. All right. Um, now he suggests that what would account for anything other than the replication of the thing which caused the second. That if it, So if we have anything that, happens differently than that, there must have been another factor that changed the course. So he follows Aristotle suggesting a moist Southern wind could cause um, there to be women. So he thinks that in the normal course, men produce men, because he thinks that they are the entire active cause of the next generation that the male seed's like a regular seed, but he's wrong about that, guys. Um, But that's what he thinks. That is current science. And therefore, to deviate from production of the former would require another cause, like a moist wind. All right, so if we told good old Aquinas about both gametes, like the, the large immodal gamete and the small modal gamete of male and female, well, then his opinion would change. He would realize that, um, no, it's not like that oak seed. It actually must be combined together into a happy little zygote. So Aquinas thinks that a woman is lacking a, uh, a material quality that differentiates her from a man. We said that that would be a Y chromosome. That's true. And he thinks that everybody is aimed at being a man originally by nature and that a cause needs to jump in and change that to be female but he actually has that in reverse everybody's originally developing as a female until that materially differentiating factor that we talked about turns them to uh, or changes their uh, developmental trajectory towards male all right um in his response in this section He paraphrases John Chrysostom, who has the famous rib analogy. Eve is not made from Adam's head to rule over him or from his feet to be ruled over by him, but from his side, from his rib, in order to be his perfect partner. So that's his tradition. That's the church's tradition. That goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, of course. All right, so there's one more thing I need to, to deal with, because we've already dealt with this idea that a woman is accidental, but I explained that he just means that she's materially and not formally differentiated from a man. And we think that's true, because if it was essentially differentiated, then she would be a different species, just like a, a dog and a cat are different. Um, so, yeah, that's what that means. And then when we um, look at the another one that's she's lacking uh he believes that she is lacking because she was not created as with all of the things that a man has he thinks that she materially lacks some type of thing which makes her a him hey dokie. so none of that is a comment on her worth or anything else two things of the same essence have an equal uh, an equal dignity of course That's the same reason why in the Catholic Church we don't think that somebody who is uh, smart or dumb or tall or short or any other thing has a lower human dignity. That comes from being made in the image of God, which, of course, men and women both obviously are. But there is another part that people pick out thinking that my man Aquinas is some type of raging misogynist. I want to defend him on this one also. He points out that men seem to be ordered towards reason in a way that women are not. Now, if you look online, any type of um, explanation of this, you see people saying, he thinks that they're ordered towards reason, which means that he thinks that women are hysterical and irrational. (laughs) No, 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 that's not what he's saying. Again, I mean, people can kind of cool it for a bit and maybe just try to understand what he's trying to say. One thing is... You got to understand dude's perspective. He is in the height of intelligentsia. He's surrounded by some of the smartest people in z world. Now, there's a difference in the distribution of intelligence amongst men and women. This is something that a Google engineer was fired for just a year ago, where they were asking, how come in the top positions there aren't more women? Google engineers. And he pointed out rightly, that all the science that we have on intelligence shows that men and women are almost exactly just as smart, on average. Note, I said on average. But the distribution is different. Turns out there are more really dumb guys. And there are also more really smart guys. Women tend to be clumped more in the middle. And evolutionarily, I think that kind of makes sense. If your mother is dumb your odds of getting eaten by a bear or poisoned by a rogue berry are pretty high. Now, if your dad is really dumb, well, he can pull a cart for a living, and you still eat and you still survive. Or when that bear comes around, he's probably still smart enough to hit it with a stick or get eaten so that you didn't get eaten. On the other hand, if your mother is super smart, well, there's not actually that many opportunities for her to employ that massive intelligence, especially throughout the vast course of evolutionary history. Now, if your dad is really smart, that probably means he's like a powerful military or tribal leader, and he can take on extraordinarily high-paying tasks. That's something that could benefit you. That could be an evolutionary advantage. So I think it makes sense that the benefit of being um, super smart for guys evolutionarily has historically been higher than women, so we should expect more of that. And the downside for men to be really dumb seems to be lower. You can still be dumb and be a guy and be perfectly useful. But if you're really dumb and you're a woman, well, that's actually more of a problem. So the clumping towards the middle for female intelligence, I think, actually makes a lot of sense. Now, um, let's talk about... um, Let's talk about uh, good, old, uh, good old Aquinas. And we're going to use G.K. Chesterton to, uh, to kind of help us out on this one. He's, we're we're going to tag team him. So, reason for Aquinas regards the universal. It breaks things into categories and it deals with them in the abstract. But remember, Chesterton points out that women regard the particular, the individual, and the instantiated. So, they're not so much sensitive to the rule, but to the exception. Now, both of these are needed to have a well-functioning society where we don't have anarchy and we don't have tyranny, but we have this understanding of both the rule and the exception. Okay, so we don't want cold, oppressive, unyielding dictatorship nor do we want no norms, chaos, anarchy, and who knows what. Now, I'm going to point out here that neither of those mo- modes are irrational, but one of them relates to the classic objects of reason, which is the universals. So, in light of this, it is not so crazy for Aquinas to say that men are more oriented towards reason. In my view, I think he says this because of what men are primarily regarding, which is those universals. Um, It's not because Aquinas thinks that they have a different nature, meaning that men by nature are more rational. He would say that they have to be just as rational because they share the same rational nature as humans. So let me give you an example to kind of illuminate this. I could say that math teachers are more rational than art teachers. And I think I could say this even if the same teachers taught both subjects. Why? Because there are two ways that I can speak of their rationality. One, regarding their nature. And two, regarding the object of their action. So in the second, I can rightly call the math teachers more rational because they're teaching math not because they are inherently more rational than the art teacher. Likewise, I could say that the guy playing basketball down the street is more athletic than the guy sitting at home. That is true. But that doesn't mean that maybe the guy at home isn't stronger and faster. Maybe he is. Um, Maybe the guy sitting at home is actually a pro of some type of sport and is objectively more athletic. Maybe, but my statement is still true, Because my statement is grounded in the action. The guy playing basketball down the street is more athletic than the guy sitting at home. I can make that statement true if it's grounded in the action that they are taking up. So there you go. I think that Aquinas' point is not about the nature of women as less rational. I think he would reject that because of his philosophy. Instead, I'd say it's their object of apprehension. They of apprehension. Yes, they're apprehending. I think a long episode. They're apprehending two different things. One is more general and about rules, the classic understanding of the the rational. The other is about the instantiated and the individual. That's also not, it's not irrational, but it's not the classic subjects of reason. Both are needed in society. Both are meant to cooperate. Both actually find themselves in the twin institutions, church and state, both necessary for the human family. This is a many part episode. We are switching gears a little bit too. A few points about evangelism. I told you guys that in each of these episodes, I'm going to try to encourage you to A, evangelize, and B, tell you any good stories or any good tips that come from my listeners. And I have two such things. One, from my friend Gershwin, he points out that when you're in conversations, and I think he's typically having conversations with Protestants, it can be very helpful to ask people when they're arguing about Scripture what the passages say not what they think the passages mean. Now, that's a deceptively simple um, clarification. But think about how powerful that is when, say, a Protestant presents uh, verses from the Romans' road and says, well, this is what the Protestant view of salvation is. Now, we would say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You just assumed your meaning and quoted the verse. But (laughs) let's go the other way. Let's quote the verse and then talk about what it means because they're asking us to jump to their understanding of the passage just because they quoted something. That's not fair. So he invites us, Gershwin invites us, to ask them to describe what the passage is saying and to differentiate that from what they think it's meaning. And I think that's a great way to get to something that we have in common, which is scripture, instead of arguing from things we don't have in common, which would be their tradition, i.e. the abstracted meaning of the text. Gregory points out the, um, we're going to call it the don't cast pearls before swine tip. Now in this tip, um, he's having a conversation with somebody who um, is bashing a lot of the Catholic faith, and um, he points out that, you know they're actually incorrect about these things, and uh, the person he's talking to says, "Well, well what fine, okay, whatever. What does the Catholic Church believe about?" And I think they were discussing marriage?" And he says, "No, I'm not going to tell you. You see, you are just looking for something to criticize." So I'm not going to give you the tenets of our sacred faith just for you to criticize them. If you want to know them because you want to study them, if you're interested in them, if that's your motivation to find the truth, then yes, I will teach you all day. I will give you every resource and I will answer any question. But I will not be explaining to you what my age-old religion is teaching if your only goal is to tear it down. You do not get to know my faith then. Now, this really put them on the back foot and made them incredibly curious about what the church actually believed. We're so used to just expecting people to just give us the answer, and nobody ever holds back and says, no, you don't actually get to know this. You need to come to this knowledge with a spirit of humility. Yeah, that's a good move. So I invite you guys to use some of those moves and let me know how they work out. And lastly, in the podcast with more segments than an arthropod, I give you the mailbag questions. Warning, ridiculousness ahead, but I will answer any question you send to me. Sammy says... (laughs) He asks, assuming one has already um, inquired about various shellfish allergies... Could one invite somebody to a birthday party where the cake is a crab cake without informing them first of the nature of the cake? <laughs> well, um, I would say you don't have to warn them. Here's why. Warning relates to danger. That's why one warns somebody. They warn them of a danger. But you already mentioned that you have done due diligence to make sure they are not indeed allergic to shellfish. So I'd say you do not need to warn them. But that doesn't mean you don't need to tell them. And here's why I'd say this. There is a precedent laid down by the venerable ice cream cake. Think back to the 90s and early 2000s. How many times did somebody invite you to a birthday party, and when there was an ice cream cake, not call it an ice cream cake? Nobody said, "Oh, we'll be having cake," and then it was a surprise. It was an ice cream cake. No, no, no. We just used ice cream cake as the term. So I think that's the precedent that we have. Um, if you are to have a crab cake for your birthday cake, um, there's no need to hide this. There's no need to warn people, but. When referencing the cake, you should reference it by the term crab cake. And I have one more question here. This one says, um, is there a relation between the id, the ego, and the superego to the um, uh, hylomorphic understanding uh, in the Catholic faith of the human person? Um, yes, to an extent, yes, I think Freud is wrong about a great many things, but I'd say these can be reasonable categories. I mean, the whole premise of this and the rest of the episodes is that we ought to have many lenses to view certain, um, certain questions, right? We used a male and female lens in order to extract some understanding and kind of cut the Gordian knot on the question of church and state. We have a variety of other lenses. So the id, ego, and superego can be a useful way for looking at human nature. And so can the ideas of hylomorphism. The, um, the ideas that we are rational animals, I think, does actually map fairly well. The id would relate to the animal nature. And the ego and possibly the superego relate to the rational nature. So for Freud, as I understand it, the, um, the superego is a moral sense And the ego is that sense which relates this moral sense to the id and just kind of basically keeps the id under control. It's the impulse management, which then gets directed by the superego. If I was to relate this to the Catholic view of the human person, I would have to say it's got to include the body, the will, and the reason. Now, the will is that which is apprehending things which are good, And that relates particularly to moral action. So that would have to be what's relating to the superego. And the reason is that which keeps our animal body under control, right? So the issue I have with this particular lineup is it seems to be preferencing the will above the the intellect, and I'm not entirely sure that's the way it works. That's something that seems more Franciscan. They view the uh, supremacy of the will first, um, and consequently the idea of love first, but I'm more team Dominican. I think that the reason has pride of place. I think it's what first presents options to the will, and then the will does the choosing. And I think that this presentation of the goods on offer in this rational way to the will that then uh, makes efficacious um, one or another um, potential direction, uh, I think that that puts the reason in charge. So I'd say the reason would relate better to the superego as far as like the the order of precedence. Uh, But yeah, I don't think that fits with Freud's theory. So if you take a more Franciscan view of the human person, I think you can map on the will, the reason, and the body itself to the the id, the ego, and the superego quite nicely. Um, Cool. There you go. Our many-segmented episode has finally come to an end. I do invite you, if you enjoyed or benefited from this episode, to share it with a friend, to leave a review. Why is he talking to somebody else? No, he is not. He is talking to you. Yes, I mean you. No, not me. Yes, I mean you. Leave a review. It is probably the number one way for people to find it. It bumps it up in the old algorithm. So if you want other people to find it, that would be the way to do it. That and sharing with your friends. As always, you can write to me about any evangelism things. If you need a hand on anything, need some resources or want to uh, tell me a success story or a tip, Write to me at thegordianknot101 at gmail.com. And of course, if you have any mailbag questions, episode suggestions, any comments whatsoever, I love hearing from you guys. It is a serious reason why I continue this podcast is I enjoy when you guys reach out and I hear from you guys. So thegordianknot101 at gmail.com. And I hope you join me for the next episode. And God bless.